again everyone thanks for tuning in if this is your first time welcome to the show and if you're a repeat listener welcome back my name is jeffrey kwame your host and the executive director of the connecticut certification board the ccb is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery industry this podcast is sponsored by our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut. Mountainside provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. Its residential program is one of three in the country to earn that dual accreditation, as well as a 3.7 level of care certification from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. This distinction recognizes its outcomes-driven treatment programming, 24-7 nursing care, and comprehensive psychiatric services. Learn more about Mountainside at mountainside.com. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. In her 2018 text, Introduction to Paratransference and Therapeutic Practice, London psychotherapist and professor Paolo Valerio opens with, while transference has been fully described in the literature, countertransference has been viewed as its ugly sibling, and hence there is still not as much guidance for trainees about how to handle difficult emotions such as shame and envy, as well as conflict in the consulting room. That was 2018, just three years ago, and we still didn't have a cache of resources to effectively train professionals on what was initially identified by Sigmund Freud almost 120 years earlier and is commonplace in our clinical work. Our guest today has spoken at national conferences on the subject with his presentation, Countertransference and the Boundary of Self, of which I've attended on more than one occasion, and I even stole his idea and his material for my own presentation of the same name. I'm proud to consider him as my muse in this area, as well as a trusted colleague. With more than 30 years of providing direct service as a clinician, clinical supervisor, and program executive director, Tom Baer currently provides consultation in the areas of substance abuse treatment, medication-assisted treatment, and psychiatric rehabilitation, as well as providing education and training to direct service personnel. He serves as adjunct faculty for the Drexel University College of Nursing and Health Professions, Mr. Bayer is a three-term past president of the Board of Directors for the Pennsylvania Certification Board. He is the 1991 recipient of the Lorraine Hinkle Memorial Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Drug and Alcohol Treatment, awarded by Villanova University. He holds a master's degree in human services, is a licensed professional counselor, and holds Pennsylvania State certificates as an alcohol and drug counselor and as a clinical supervisor. In addition to having served as a substance abuse counselor, clinical supervisor, and program administrator, Mr. Bayer remains actively involved in several workforce development initiatives designed to promote careers in treating substance use. As a program surveyor for the Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities, Tom is involved in the promotion of substance abuse treatment best practice standards on the national level. His current focus is the implementation of evidence-based practices in medication-assisted treatment for opioid abuse and the implementation of meaningful clinical supervision. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for focusing on this particular topic. 
Well, ever since seeing your presentation in at one of the NCAD meetings, you know, it sparked something inside of me that it's often overlooked and misunderstood. And, and any conversation that we can have about countertransference is really important. So just to begin, can you simply clarify the difference between transference and countertransference for our audience? Sure. They're essentially two sides of the same coin. So that the terms themselves are dependent upon who is actually doing or promoting this particular scenario. So we have transference, which is when the client does it. And then counter to that is when the clinician does it. And transference, as Freud gave it to us back around 1900, 1901. And his initial recognition of this was with a particular patient of his who left treatment suddenly. And it wasn't until several years later, in hindsight, as he thought about this particular case, that he realized that she saw him as a father figure, and he failed to recognize that and utilize that. And that's, that's probably why she left treatment, was his belief. And by and large, the largest incidents that we see with transference from clients is related to any issues they might have, unresolved issues of power and authority, because they see us as someone in power and with authority, if only simply because we have so much information about them and there's no counterbalance to that. They don't have all this information about us. So they see someone as someone in authority. And if they have any unresolved issues from childhood or even later in life, that they will project that or transfer that onto us unconsciously as someone in authority. So, so that's been well known for many years now. And in fact, many of us came from schools of thought where we would anticipate it, look for it, and sometimes even sometimes induce transference so that we could utilize it in a therapeutic environment. Countertransference, correspondingly, is when the clinician does it. And once again, it's an unconscious process. So typically we don't know unless we've developed really decent insight, self-awareness, and are fully cognizant of our own issues in this regard. An indicator for me, for instance, is when a clinician has what is an irrational response to a client. And this is a client who, you know, he never really said anything or really did anything but you just don't like the SOB. <laughs> and every time he's in your office, the little hairs go up on the back of your neck and, and you just don't like him. And there's no rational, logical reason for you not to like this human being. That is typically your own unconscious applying some material onto this poor, unsuspecting soul who really doesn't deserve it. And if you don't recognize it for what it is, you may act out on that dislike for this particular client. And as a clinical supervisor, I've seen many instances where clinicians unconsciously set a client up to fail for just this reason, that they are experiencing countertransference with a client. So mission does it, we consider it countertransference. When the client is doing it, we consider it transference. One of the things about countertransference that I find incredibly interesting is that when it's talked about, very similar to ethics, it's never in a positive regard when there yeah. is a lot of good that can come out of that. Uh, ab ab absolutely. It has high utility for us if we understand it for what it is. 
you know, any discussion of counter-transference, we have to start with values. And it's not unusual in our field, in substance use disorder industry, to assume, generally unconsciously, that we have some universality in how we approach things and how we perceive things. So we impose our values onto others, unconsciously. You know, what are some of the pitfalls of that line of thinking and that value imposition? Yeah, and... And this continues to surprise me when I see it happening, if only because at least in academic environments, when we're preparing counselors to do this kind of work, what values are and how they can be imposed across the board on people and and to have a deep appreciation for that. So, And sometimes that disconnect happens for people once they leave an academic environment and go into the workplace and direct application, if they're not getting what I would consider to be good clinical supervision, it can lead to these kinds of things. So, and in fact, I'm currently just finishing up an ethics class at at Drexel University, and we spent a whole lot of time when we talk about values and value imposition of what it actually looks like in, in the workplace. For instance, one ethical dilemma I had the students working on was one whereby a counselor was a very devout Christian. And when you walked into her office, that was pretty evident in the first few minutes of her office. She had she has posters on the walls with um, biblical verses on them and pictures. She has a crucifix on one wall. And, and the pictures that are on her desk of her in the choir at church and, and doing fellowship with her church members. and that, So it becomes real evident what her value based is. But she has a client on her caseload who's a very vocal atheist. <laughs> and so he's now in her office. The first time he's in her office, he looks around and he starts challenging these value based systems using his own value based system. And so this conflict happens. So for the students, I'm asking them to resolve this. How do you, you're the supervisor. You see this objectively. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> it becomes the question. But that, that but that's a, a an, an area you cannot not distribute your values all over the place all the time. The object is to be cognizant of the for a what your values are and b how you are communicating them to the world around you, especially your clients, because often. Con- Conflicts are related between clinician and client are related to exactly those things, the values and the values endemic in a culture, just like institutions, programs have their own cultures, have their own values. And what we ask employees to do is to buy into those. And we ask our clients to buy into those. They don't always work, as a matter of fact, when there are contrary values. So it's always worth a discussion all the time, as far as I'm concerned, all over the place to talk about what our base values are in this regard and what they look like in the workplace and how they get introduced to clients, to your peers. And usually that's, once again, often an unconscious process where you just see someone's values based upon the things they say and the things they do. But environmentally, we do those as well, just like that example of the Christian with all the indicators. So one of the things I introduce uh, certainly students to and clinicians is to a, a clear understanding of their clinical environment that you create for a client to walk into. And what does it say about you as a person, you as a clinician in terms of values? 
because those personal space will give out those messages. Are we cognizant of what those messages are becomes the question. And that, and that could be hard to do just like I had this conversation recently with one of my neighbors because of the, the pandemic, we're very isolated in our houses. And so I've, I've lost objectivity of what my house looks like and smells like for, for a potential outsider to walk into. Sometimes it takes somebody else, an objective outsider, to look in your office and say, you know, I have some concerns about X and what that might say to a particular client because it is value-laden and it is probably telling the clients X. Are you okay with that would be my question to them. For me, I, I got my for- clinical start in mental health where we didn't, we talked about counter-transference all the time. There was no assumption of shared lived experience, whether we had it or not. It just didn't come up. And when I came into the substance use disorder field, it was a badge of honor to be, to have your own recovery history and share that with the clients and things. And and there were very limited ways that somebody could get help. You know, we didn't have much beyond 12 steps. And so counter-transference was not really discussed. There was an expectation of we're the same. So there's not really a power differential, although there is a huge one. And I expect everyone to see things the way I do, because that's my peer group in my own yeah. recovery. And, and, and it's so different. And it's, a, it's often difficult to talk about because people think that we're discounting their own recovery history. And we're not, we just want them to use it differently. Exactly right. Unless you're a peer specialist in some kind. And I have a particular measurement that I use for things like self-disclosure. If a client wants to know from you whether you're somebody in recovery or not, and every client will typically ask that of a clinician. My question often is, response to that, whether you're in recovery or not in recovery? And I have a, a singular filter for that. And that is a question that, that I will ask clinicians when I see them do a, a self-disclosure is, what was your clinical rationale for that particular self-disclosure? And what was your expectation in terms of results of that? And I shut up and I listen very carefully because my expectation is that as a clinician, you are operating from a foundation of a clinical understanding, methodology, approaches to doing this, and that everything you do goes through that filter, including things like self-disclosure and your recovery process. The other measurement I have in that regard, especially to to self-disclosure about recovery, is how long does it take to do it? Do you tell your entire history to the client, expecting somehow that this is of value to them? Or or, once, once again, it always goes back to what's the clinical rationale? You are a clinician. That's your base. Operate from that base consistently. And that's my expectation of a clinician. I think there's an expectation for many providers that that helps build the therapeutic relationship. And for most, it doesn't. And I always use the example of if I walk into Dunkin' Donuts in the morning and someone makes (laughs) eye contact with me, which I try to avoid, and and says, good morning, I respond with, good morning, how you doing? Just to be polite. I don't really want to know how (laughs) you're doing. And I like to say that I'm fairly healthy. Others may argue that point. But when a client is sitting in your office and they're in withdrawal and their cravings and they're feeling lousy, the last thing they care about is what you did. It's what can you do for me today? And exactly it, it right. Puts a little bit of a, a, a 
different view on that question of are you in recovery or are you not? It's, well, how can I help you? Yeah. We were taught initially, I remember when I was first taught it was, it's not about me, it's about you, which is us saying, screw you. <laughs> you asked a question, I'm not going to answer it, I'm going to avoid it. Or we say, we're all in recovery from something. <laughs> and even if we are, we're not, we're different people. Absolutely. So, and, and, and your recovery process in and of itself does not necessarily make sense to the client who's sitting in front of you. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. going to take this to some path and the path has to be discovered for themselves. I like to tell people, and I had to change it over the years. I used to say that your own re- recovery experiences are great fuel for your vehicle, but they're not the roadmap. Now I have to yeah. say GPS because no one knows what a map is. <laughs> so you mentioned supervision as a, a the best way to avoid these pitfalls. And you mentioned what you may do as a clinical supervisor. How do you handle somebody who doesn't even realize kind of what they're saying? They're unconsciously putting out, you know, their recovery stuff, speaking in AA slogans, or, you know, it's just part of the clinical language or whatever base they come from. They're just kind of coming out with rhetoric. How do you kind of approach that with a with an individual to help them see? Well, there are a variety of ways, and a lot of it is dependent, and there's a parallel process here to the clinical relationship itself as, as to what intervention you will use with a particular individual. And timing is a critical piece of that as well. Are they ready even to hear the information and to develop a particular subset of insight and self-awareness? And there's also that boundary which can often get fuzzy in doing clinical supervision between doing therapy with somebody and doing clinical supervision with somebody. So all that is in that equation as well. When we look at meditation related to what they are calling clinical, we are seeing administrative supervision take place, not clinical supervision. For instance, one of the things that I would expect to see if I'm reading a clinical supervisor's notes is I would expect to see the word countertransference appear on a regular basis because we know that it's happening all the time and all over the place. So how does it get addressed in the workplace? By and large, it does not get addressed in the workplace. And that's chief among the problems that I see. When it comes to A, insight and self-awareness by the clinician on what is happening with them in their relationship with this client. I know, for instance, for myself, that I'm experiencing clinical counter-transference with a client when I have a strong emotional reaction to the client, either positive or negative. For me, that's an alarm bell. The light bulb goes off over my head and I say, okay, suddenly I'm in the middle of my chest instead of being up in my head where I belong as a clinician. So let me be aware of that and get back on track here and get back up in my own head. And that, and that's often for many clinicians enough to put the safeguards in place to prevent any damage being done to the client or this relationship with the client through me acting out on whatever that strong feeling happens to be. And it can be positive or negative. All too often we think of countertransference as a negative thing, but there's positive countertransference as well. And that needs to be addressed on a regular basis too. So it's important you're saying clinical supervision can kind of change that narrative from strictly negative to, to being more open and honest that there's positive and negative and counter transference. 
So you're talking about, it seems, an enlightened self-awareness, which many of us think we have, but is really, really difficult. And it, it needs to be tested. And the way you test that is in your day-to-day operationalizing with clients over and over again. And if you have decent objectified clinical feedback to what is happening, do you develop that? You really don't have any choice because good clinical supervision is also intrusive. And in fact, many clinicians who have never had it and then suddenly get it, resent it at first. They'll learn to appreciate it, but initially it's intrusive because the, one of the hallmarks of good clinical supervision is direct observation. Is is your supervisor sitting in on individual sessions periodically, co-facilitating a group with you on occasion, and having conversations related to all that stuff? That's the hallmark of good clinical supervision. At least that's where it begins. That's where it starts. And we don't, we just don't see that happening. I see more and more clinical supervisors or so-called clinical supervisors with their own caseloads, sometimes the same as their clinicians, the same number of people in their case. How can you, because my position on that is, if you're a clinical supervisor, then all those people that you supervise and their caseloads are your caseloads as well. That requires a lot of time, energy, and resources to facilitate that. And we're just not seeing it happening. Part and parcel of that is, is the problem associated with how our systems are funded. There's no way to bill Medicaid for clinical supervision or many insurance companies. There's just no way to do that. So the, the expense of real clinical supervision has to be somehow formulated within the organizations. But first, they have to realize that it has value. And all they have to do is look at the literature related to that, and you'll see that there's plenty of value. Your, your employees stay in place for longer periods of time. They are happier on the job. And the clients benefit ultimately from good clinical supervision. My clinical supervisor, when I was a social work student many years ago, he tore me up. He, I hated him, but I appreciate him. And we're friends and we've been friends ever since. We co-facilitated a group and he would fire people up and see how I dealt with it. (laughs) And he was the safety net. Yeah. In case it, but it was incredibly difficult and, and, but it was the best clinical supervision I ever got because it forced me to take a look at myself. Yeah. And luckily you had that opportunity because the, the gaps now where even getting good mentorship is just, just not there at this point in time. And I had the exact same thing. And I discovered what it was by going outside of the organization I worked in and buying clinical supervision from somebody. That's when I discovered what, in fact, it was. And I had the same experience as you did, because she would say to me sometimes when I would talk about a client and inflate my own self-importance <laughs> in that relationship, she would turn to me because she also knew how to talk to me. And she would say, Tom, slow down, stop for just a minute, because I have a question for you. She would let this pregnant pause happen, and she would look me directly and I exactly who the F do you think you are? <laughs> and I had to say, yeah, let me think about it. Who am I in this particular relationship in this scenario? And it was often overinflated. <laughs> and Peter was great. He may be listening. You were tough, but you were kind. In case you're listening, I do want to speak <laughs> to your class again. <laughs> When we look at countertransference, one of the, I think, the easiest ways, the simplest ways to look at it is kind of structurally. 
And in that, with that perspective in mind, what are some of the things that we should focus on? Well, first of all, it really is related to insight and self-awareness on the clinician's part. Like I just gave an example of my own experience where my mentor could be very direct with me because we had developed that kind of relationship. Instead, I'm going to do more of a Q&A sort of approach where, well, what do you, what do you think is happening here? <laughs> because, you know, you're not getting along with this client. What, why do you think that is? What's going on? And so initially they will talk about all the client behaviors and stuff that they don't like. And so then I will go back and say, and what about you and your reaction to all this stuff? What's that like for you? And a lot of this comes out of one of the things that I was also required to do at one point in my career was process documentation in the course of an individual session where I had to document on a legal pad while a session was happening with a client. And it had three columns on it. The first column off to the left was the column that just said content, meaning what's going on, what are we talking about, who introduced the topic, that kind of stuff. The middle column was my clinical analysis of the client's process itself. Are they seemingly agitated and anxiety? Are they wringing their hands? Are they avoiding eye contact? All that kind of stuff went into that middle column. The third column, which is really where the most supervision happens, was my process. What was going on with me while the topic was happening and I'm interpreting the client's reactions to the topic? Where am I in this process? Am I comfortable, uncomfortable? And I can remember the first time being forced to do this for weeks. Everything in that third column was how I was pissed off at even having to do this <laughs> and how much I hated it. And my supervisor initially read that and said to me, excellent, you're right on target. Just keep doing it. <laughs> this will resolve itself and you'll start to develop some other stuff for that column. And of course, that's exactly what would happen. And so I had to do, and it's a really hard thing to do, these three levels simultaneously, having a focus on content and documenting it and the client's process and my own process simultaneously. It's a difficult process to do, but it's extraordinarily rewarding in terms of developing the kinds of insight and self-awareness, especially around issues of counter-transference and how I'm reacting to the client in that very moment. It's one of those tools for doing that. The other tool that I really like, which we've used in academia, but it doesn't get used in the workplace. I would love to see us translate it into a workplace format. And it's called triadic supervision, where a clinical supervisor supervises two people simultaneously. And it's usually done with a videotape of sessions. So you tell two clinicians. And what's important at the foundation of this is it's important in how you choose those two clinicians. They have to be clinicians who like one another. So you ask them in advance to each to record either an individual or group session, review it for themselves, and select five or 10 minutes tops out of that that you would like to have a discussion about. So all three of you now come together in one room. I turn to you, Jeffrey, and I say, so Jeffrey, what are you about to show us? And What's your thinking? And you have a very brief synopsis of what you're about to show us. We then look at your videotape of those five to 10 minute segment. And then your role then is to simply sit there and be quiet while I turn to your cohort and I say to him or her, so what did you see in the video? And what do you think? Would you be doing something differently? 
What kind of advice would you have for the clinician? And we objectify you while you're sitting in the room. <laughs> we talk about you as if you're not even there. And we, once again, don't belabor this. It's another five to 10 minute process at the conclusion of which I say, thank you very much for your feedback. I then turn back to you and I say, so Jeffrey, what did you hear? And what do you think you can take away from that? My belief is that you will remain open enough to actually hear us talk about you object and objectify your clinical skills <laughs> in this particular videotape and actually take something away from it. And then we reverse the process, right? I'll turn to your cohort and say, what did you bring in terms of videotape today? We watch it. And then I turn to you and say, so Jeff, what do you think? What do you think? What did you like? Not like, what would you be doing different? And once again, we just have this objectified conversation about that person. And there's extraordinary value to this. That Everybody gets a lot out of it. I get to do clinical supervision with two people simultaneously. <laughs> so it's cost effective in that way. And we have found that the peer feedback filtered through me as the supervisor here is it has extraordinary value to the student and listening if they can listen and stay open and then have all their defenses come to the fore. <clears throat> and then sometimes it requires a little processing after the fact, especially if it's been a bit difficult for somebody to, with this particular issue, whatever it happens to be. But it, it's a really great tool in academia that we typically use because it can be very fun, it can be engaging, all that kind of stuff. But once again, imagine what that's like if you put two people in the room who are pissed at one another that day or don't like one another. They could use it <laughs> to their own advantage to rake somebody through the coals. To me, that's group supervision. That's how I was trained, being a group worker, that we had group, separate group supervision, and it was tough, and your peers, but you learned if you were open. Absolutely. So, and and the regrettably less and less of that seems to be happening in the workforce. One of the things that stuck out when, when I first met you and, and listened to you talk about countertransference was how you express something, and it goes into our own self-awareness, is we tell clients it's not about me, it's about you. But it really is about us to some degree, just not as we would normally think. Yeah, and that relates to the issue of just objectivity. There's no such thing as pure objectivity once you have subjects involved. <laughs> and so I can't leave me out of the equation. And the literature is pretty clear on this when you look at what works and what doesn't work in therapeutic environments. And there's less emphasis being put on the techniques and the theoretical models that we are utilizing with clients and more emphasis, as it should be, on our developing relationship with the client. The difficulty related to that is in typical social interactions between two human beings, there's always this negotiation to be equitable between both parties. It's a give and a it's a take. I can cry on your shoulder as much as you can cry on my shoulder. And there's all that negotiation happens all the time in our relationships. But suddenly there's this relationship where it's one-sided the power and the control is in one person's hands. The other person doesn't. The one person is, is responsible for the, the development and the maintenance of all the boundaries of those relationships and everything else. So, the, so there's this lack of, of equitable distribution of power in those relationships. And that's by design. 
And that's as it should be, as a matter of fact. That's what actually has benefit for this particular relationship. But it's different than from all of our other relationships. And, and understanding that is a key component for students in this field, is understanding that dividing line. It's not that it's all about the client. It cannot be all about the client. There has to be an equal amount of you in this picture. And we talk, often talk about being present in the moment with a client. And that's a foundation. And I truly believe that that's an important part of this process as well. However, it has to be in the context of what your responsibilities are in that moment. It has to be in the context of what hat you are wearing. You're wearing the hat of a clinician. We wear many hats, as should be. When, when you leave the agency that day and the door hits you in the butt, you take your clinician hat off. And you put some other hat on. When you walk into the house, you're, you put your dad hat on. You put your mom hat. You put your brother, sister, whatever. All those other relationships in our lives. They are all different and distinct roles with purpose and design. And that is especially true for our clinical relationships with our clients. But again, it is maintained within some healthy, meaningful guidelines where the client always benefits from the interactions. It's not that we don't benefit. We do benefit. And when we get to the warm and fuzzy stuff, you clinicians will often talk about, you know, how lovely it is to see clients embrace principles of recovery, put their own, all that's really great stuff. But it should be secondary to the reality of it that this is a J-O-B. This is a job for which you are paid. You are in a paid relationship with another human being. And that changes the dynamics as it should. But the onus on the relationship itself and where it's going and how it gets there is always on the clinician with all the roadblocks that are in the way. You know, if we fail to recognize that there's a power differential, we are at great risk to abuse it with suggestions and advice. And I think that's important. And when you talk about being present, what's important is where we're at in the here and now, not what happened 10 years ago or what we did four days ago. It's really being completely present in the moment. It's interesting because one thing that hasn't taken a great hold here, which I did, which encourages discussion of countertransference, is Scott Miller's work about feedback-informed treatment, where the, the client is giving feedback to the clinician on how good they are, what they did that worked yeah. for them, what they did. The, and in Europe, it has a much stronger hold. But that encourages countertransference and makes you deal with it in the moment. And I, I think it's just tremendous. I wish we would see much more of that. But again, you've got training that costs dollars. Does it meet the guidelines? It doesn't work fast, but it's all about yeah. the clinical relationship. And I think that that's I, amazing. Absolutely. Given its strength as a predictor of successful treatment, we can't skip talking about that therapeutic relationship, uh, both positive, negative, and countertransference. How does effective management of our own countertransference help us improve the relationship? I love to do some of the foundational stuff with, especially students, is well, why do you want to come into this field at all? You know, what's your, even your initial motivation for doing this? What are your expectations? What are your desires? What are your hopes? What are your dreams related to doing this kind of work? Because the reality is it's very hard work in sometimes very difficult environments where sometimes it seems like paperwork is the norm beyond anything else. 
and and we don't get paid all that great to do the kind of work that we do. So so what are you doing here, and why why are you here? And to have some insight and self awareness just on that issue alone as as a foundation for wanting to even do this kind of work. And I believe that if if clinicians develop some understanding of that as a foundational issue, that other stuff can be built on top of that in terms of their developing insight and self-awareness. And then I'm looking for some measurements along the way. One of the measurements I have is, is things like clinical team meetings. One of the things that really warms the cockles of my heart is when I can sit in a clinical team meeting and having a clinician say something like, if I can have a few moments of everybody's time, I wanted to just talk briefly about this guy on my caseload. You know, the guy, Jeffrey, with the mohawk and all the piercings and everything. <laughs> I, I just don't like him. I, you know, he's never done anything or anything or acted out. For just some reason, I don't like him. So I know it's counter-transference on my part. And I'm, and I'm working on making sure that it doesn't get in the way. But if anybody here sees me interacting with Jeffrey in any way, shape, or form that's a bit untoward, please pull me up on that and let me know if I don't see it myself. Just pull me up on that. Thanks a lot, folks. Moving right along. Because what that really solid clinician has just done is take a bit of risk, expose himself to his peer group, and that in and of itself puts those safeguards readily in place to protect his client from him, <laughs> which is obviously the goal here. And, and it also models for the other clinicians how this works. And so I'm going to go out of my way to make sure he gets plenty of support related to this, that we will do as he asks and monitor him in his interactions with this guy he doesn't like. But the last thing I want to do at that point is move this person across a caseload. And that's always an issue for me as we're doing horse trading. And to avoid, instead of deal with your own issues related to this guy. So the question becomes, when we do individual sessions together as supervisionists, how's that going? What are you doing to safeguard him from you? And what are you, how are you making sure? Let's talk about your last session together. I just read your note. You said X. What was that like for you in working with this particular client? Let's talk about what your responses as this was happening was like. And we'll do all that because he's put the safeguards in place. And just like as someone who manages a certification board, you know that all of our credentials are about consumer protection. Yep. That, that's what it's about. And so is clinical supervision. So is the development of insight by clinicians. So that when they are experiencing counter-transference, which we expect to happen, identify it for exactly what it is. And B, the safeguards in place to assure that your clients are not going to be distracted or somehow hurt by this particular issue of yours. It would be wonderful if we could leave our own stuff in a little box outside of our offices when we come into these interactions with clients. But the reality of it is that's not possible. Our, our baggage comes along with us into that room. I think when we talk about countertransference as well, it's important to notice that it's very, very different for every individual. And what may seem simple to me may be difficult to somebody else and vice versa. Because of my background in mental health, when I started working and I worked in an OTP, whenever somebody displayed some significant 
behaviors related to a personality or some symptoms of a personality disorder. Oh my God, we got to send him to Jeff or my clinical supervisor at the time, Jen, who's also on my board. And oh, you got to hit because it what it never experienced and getting, you know, learning from your mistakes and things. Those folks did not create a lot of counter transference negatively for me because there was an expectation of, oh, this is them. You, you're trained. You say, this is how they cope. This is a survival mechanism. It's not directed. I may be the object, but it's it's not really about me. And it made it so easy. But I had significant responses to people who seemed to be doing better, but weren't moving at all. And other people are much better with that. And, and I, they're like, oh, that person is so easy. I go, that makes me crazy <laughs> because it's not my training. and It's not my comfort level. I didn't mind the acuity and the difficulty. So just because it affects me, again, there's no universality in that. It's not, it, it's not necessarily going to affect somebody else, but we can share and learn from that. Yeah. And, just, and you also raise the possibility, which sometimes doesn't get talked about a lot because we often focus on the negative aspects of countertransference, the people that we don't like. But there's positive countertransference. And this is the client who gives us the warm and fuzzies. This is the client that we really like. And maybe it's not love, maybe it's not lust, but but they really round out your clinical day because they they get it, you know. They hang on your every word. They seem to have a deep appreciation for your advice for them. And <laughs> that frightens and, me, just so yeah. you know. That kind of client frightens me, like I'm missing something. As well it should, as a matter of fact, because you probably are missing (laughs) So this is a client, maybe you only have her on Tuesday mornings for an individual session and in group once a month. But man, if, if she could come on Thursday afternoons, that would really round out your week because of all the other people that you have to deal with or a pain in your butt. And, and this is a client who you hang on to in treatment longer than she should be in treatment because she's of such value to you. This is the client who may be in group when she's being confronted by her peers because she should be confronted by her peers. You jump in there and you red cross that particular process (laughs) to diffuse that because God, what if she doesn't show up for group next week, (laughs) you know, or next month or whatever. So that's that. That's just one example of positive countertransference response to a client, which can be equally destructive yeah. to the entire process. And, and it this makes me like, laugh because I've been there. Of right course, on those of course. And I and have this, to have someone tell me, "Hey." <laughs> and this is the client who gets to manipulate you and manipulate the entire process to their own detriment, of course. But you have benefit from this, so you go along for that ride. Yeah, and that's another. That's just an example of positive countertransfers, which is not productive. Kind of wrapping it up here, knowing that we just scratched the surface. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to add? We can teach counselors and clinicians in some of the best environments, some of the best Ivy League institutions, even in house. I've seen some really good training happening at agency levels by some very bright, intelligent trainer. And that's often where the problem is. There's this disconnect between giving people good training and having the kind of people in place like decent clinical supervisors who can see and understand how it gets integrated into the workforce. Because the the best practices, the best evidence-based practices 
often don't get implemented in a way that has viability based upon the theoretical model, simply because people are not getting good clinical supervision. So if there's anything I need to, I think we need to work on in this field, it's that. How do we get and move beyond just the supervision that's really just administrative supervision, where somebody, I call them note mommies, they count your number, progress notes, make sure your treatment plans are in and in on time, that they're signed, and all the other incidental stuff for the billing practices <laughs> that actually have to happen. And that's that's administrative supervision. And when I see in the workforce what people are calling clinical supervision, it is mostly that. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not seeing all the insight-oriented, insight-driven issues related to counter-transfer, all that kind of stuff that we would expect to see in a solid model of clinical supervision. If I were to change the world, that's an area I would want to focus on for us in drug and alcohol treatment. And I think that there are supervisors who would love to do that. Yep. But it becomes a systemic issue. Absolutely. Um, If the the system, uh, and I hate saying that because it generalizes too much, but if the system valued clinical supervision, we would see better outcomes, you know, more happy clinicians, less turnover, all of the things that we as an industry kind of struggle with. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to once again thank Tom Bayer for joining us, and I hope this discussion has motivated you to explore the topic more, because we will be at the CCB. We again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support, We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeffrey. Anytime.